friends, and welcome to Conversations with Consequences, where we are changing the culture one conversation at a time. We are the radio show and podcast of the Catholic Association. We address the issues that interest you, puzzle you, and flame you in the hope that we can bring some clarity, even to the darkest corners. You can listen to Conversations with Consequences on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network, Saturday mornings at 7 a.m. Eastern Time, or you can catch the encore at 5 p.m. We are also on Sirius XM Channel 130. Of course, our radio show is always a podcast. Go to thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts or directly to wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie. We have a great show for you this week, as we do each and every week. At the bottom of the hour, we'll be talking to Mary Rice Hassan. She's from the Ethics and Public Policy Center and one of the smartest women in America. We'll talk to her about transgender ideology and the way it's affecting our children, um, how it's affecting us as parents and the way we safeguard our kids. But first, we'll be talking to Father Benedict Keeley. We saw so many people come out to support the persecuted church around the world at the March for Martyrs this week that uh, we wanted to talk with him about this very important subject in the way Christians are persecuted all over the world. We'll be talking to him about China, Nigeria, and the Middle East. Welcome to Conversations with Consequences, Father Ben. Thank you, Gracie. Always good to be with you again. It's great to connect with you across the, the big ocean. We don't get to see each other very much now with the pandemic. Well, please God, and I really mean please God, that's going to change soon. We're, we're praying hard and things are beginning to open up a little bit, certainly in the United States. So I'm praying that I'll be back in the USA very soon. Please God, maybe next month. Well, you must come to Florida and experience life in free Florida, as we like to call it here, <laughs> where things are pleasant and people can go maskless. And it's it's such a it's such a wonderful feeling to return to real life pre-pandemic times. I'm looking times. forward to it, Gracie. I'm looking forward to it very much. Yeah, you in England, you've been rather put upon by the authorities on, on the lockdowns, right? It's been very extended. It's been hard. I think the last time I was on your show, I was describing it. And yes, I mean, for example, even still, although we're allowed to go to mass, um, we're still not allowed to sing. Can you imagine that? We can have a small group singing, like a choir, a very small choir. Actually, they even have a number, six people. But um, the congregation can't sing. So can you imagine Easter? We had Easter without being able to sing ourselves. And we have no idea when this is going to change still. So it's, it's really very peculiar and very difficult. And we're all praying very hard that this changes soon. I also feel that it's important, and maybe you can speak to this as a priest, as a pastor of souls, a curer of souls, that people have been uh, for a very long time avoiding risk and in a way that's very intense. And it's creating, I think, in a lot of people, a lot, lots of anxiety, lots of inability to break out of, of certain molds of behavior. It's sort of freezing us in place. Are you seeing that in the, in the people that you oh, counsel and you talk to? A hundred percent. It's, uh, I've said before that if you, in history, when history looks at this time, first they'll say this has been the greatest propaganda experience in, in probably since wartime because the government, and they actually admitted it, we've had a report just produced in England that the government advisors admitted that they were deliberately scaring people. They actually had a strategy to scare people and they have succeeded. People, even who've had two vaccinations now, both doses, are still scared. They're, they're, they're 
they're talking now about something called COVID re-entry syndrome. Oh, I hadn't heard. That's a great (laughs) term. That's a great term. And I, I know a lot of people who are suffering with this. I know. And it's a sign of... I don't want to be cruel and say mental instability, but there's something wrong. The church, I fear, and I don't want to be too critical, but I fear the church has been rather risk averse as well. We, obviously, you're a doctor, so I mean, we all know the sensible things that had to be done. But we've had 14 months, really, since a year ago last March, and we've heard very little of the gospel being preached, I feel, certainly in England, but I think in America as well. We haven't heard much about the preaching of the life death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We've heard an awful lot about cleaning and wiping pews and social distancing. Um, and so I think this is a, at some point, the church will have to really be repentant in its failure to proclaim the gospel during this time. Because funnily enough, it's been some atheists. I've seen articles written by atheists or agnostics who've really been calling on the church to do this work. They've they've been wanting to hear the church and we've been very silent. I think that silence has been very damaging. I think in our liberal societies, the church... The church has so many battles that that they're fighting for religious liberty, for the freedom to care for people without violating our own um, ideas of right and wrong. We're fighting on so many fronts to preserve the religious, our religious traditions in the face of, of the constant onslaught of the culture that I feel like the church in this case said, you know, let's let's be good guys and, and follow along and, and not ruffle feathers and, and be the, the most compliant players in this in this pandemic situation. And I, and I think that comes from a good place. They don't. They want to make sure that the church is always the one that that serves whatever they can serve without murmur and complaint. That that's the way the church should serve the the people. But but I agree with you that that can go on too long, and that we maybe have given up some of the freedom that we need to preach the gospel and and the urgency with which we have to preach it. And we've Absolutely. given that up in order to conform. I couldn't say it better myself, Gracie. No, I agree with you a hundred percent. And uh, rightly, yes, exactly. We we. we, we we don't talk about doing stupid things, about putting people in danger, but the, uh, as I say, I think that what worries me most has been the silence that I personally think the church, certainly in England, is going to be the last place that actually gives up some of these things. Everywhere else may end up maskless and taking away all the social distancing, but I, I have a horrible feeling the church will be the very last place, probably because of fear, as you said, that, um, but I think it has to be challenged now. We've got to be very sensible, treat people as adults. I mean, I remember when we opened up in July, because we were open from about July to the next lockdown was, I think, in November or something. But masses were continued. But the parish priest where I help out, he basically spoke to the people and said, look, these are the rules. You're all grown ups. You're all adults. Mm-hmm. I'm going to treat you as adults. And perhaps that might have been more effective because we, we've been treated not just like children. We've been treated like sheep. Yes. Sheep without a, <laughs> sheep without a shepherd sometimes. Yes. To use a gospel image. So What worries me, Father, is I know a lot of people who, who still haven't been back to Mass, who who've been missing out on all the, on their sacrament, on the Eucharist, uh, people that were daily mass goers even. And I worry about how this is affecting their souls, their connection with God. You know, and, and we build these connections with God through a life. We try to be contemplatives in the midst of the world. And we build these, this connection with God with, with our prayer and our, and our frequenting of the sacraments. And then with this pandemic, so much of this connection that we have built over so many years is being lost. I feel very badly for, for people who, who, even though they may be vaccinated, are still feeling so affected. 
afraid with COVID reentry syndrome that they're not able to reconnect again. Because the grace of the sacraments is something that we cannot underestimate. I mean, we can't talk too much about the grace of the sacraments and how they allow our hearts to open to God, to God's presence. Well, exactly. This is what we would expect, and your listeners would expect this from a from a Catholic program, from a Catholic station like EWTN. So I, I would say there is a profoundly spiritual component to this. The pandemic, the, the closure of the church began in England on the very day, the very weekend that England was being rededicated as, as the Dowry of Mary, the ancient medieval mm. title. The doors were closed that weekend. Now, to me, that tells you something very profound. The doors slammed shut. And so people staying away from the sacraments, not going to confession now for 14 months. You're right, many people who were very, what we might call religious or very devout, there's been that break and many people seem on the surface to be just fine with that. But that's that's the work of the devil. I have to be blunt, it's the work of the devil. He wants us away from the sacraments. He wants to sow this confusion. He wants to spare. And we're hearing all these kind of cases now of young people having terrible anxiety, uh, all these other problems that have come, people need to be back in church in front of the Blessed Sacrament receiving communion. And it's interesting because the thing that most relieves our anxieties, our our worldly anxieties, is that connection with God, with with a supernatural perspective, with with that constant reminder that our lives here on earth are very short, are very tiny, Mm. tiny parts of our eternal lives, which of course will be eternal. And I think, yes, I agree with you. It's the devil that that is removing our understanding of ourselves as eternal beings through this pandemic by taking us away from from our sacraments and from God. Well, this is what I meant by saying that the church has, has, has failed in many ways because that's the central proclamation that we, 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 we don't live forever on this earth. We are preparing for eternity. And although we want to do all that we can do for people's health, etc., um, part of being a Christian is memento mori, is uh, that mm-hmm. old uh, thing of St. Benedict. St. Benedict to his, said to his monastic followers, keep death daily before you. That's not grim. You, you see those pictures sometimes, medieval pictures of, of a saint holding a skull. Right. And today people react with a look of horror. Oh, how grim how miserable the reality is these people the most joyous people on earth but the skull was a reminder this world will come to an end you're preparing for eternal life and that's the message that needed to be preached and we didn't we didn't hear it and i I feel i feel very bad about that and, and because of that if you're just joining us you're listening to conversations with consequences i'm your hostess dr gracie christie and i'm talking to my good friend Father Benedict Keeley, who is in England, and he is the head and founder of Nazarene.org. It's such a beautiful charity and such an important thing for us Christians in the West to keep always in mind, which is our brothers and sisters in, in the land where Christianity was born. Well, thank you, Grace, and I'm always grateful to your to you and, and to the program for having me on. And if the listeners don't know what I, what I do now, then they haven't been listening, but I'll tell them just in case. <laughs> Yes, forgotten. please do. But yes, Nazarene.org. We, we basically have two aims. We're very small, small is beautiful, very small charity, helping persecuted Christians, mainly in the Middle East. At the, now we have uh, what we, we mini microfinance small businesses to keep Christians in their homes in Iraq, in Syria, in Lebanon now, three countries, and 
we're hoping soon to be in Egypt. And then my work as a priest is to preach, to speak, to talk, to write, doing what I'm doing with you now to remind our Christians here in the West how lucky we are and how lucky we are to be free, but also to not forget our brethren in, in, in persecuted lands. And it's not just the Middle East. We're going to get into this, I know, but it's all over the world now. Christianity, Christ and his church is being persecuted. And we must first, as Catholics and Christians, pray for our brethren. But we've got to keep them in mind. They, they, they're not, sometimes it is out of sight, out of mind when we think about the persecuted. I, I was thinking about the our, our brothers and sisters in the Middle East, of course, the last these last few weeks with the terrible uh, outbreak of hostilities between the Palestinian uh, authorities and Israel. I was wondering about our Christian brothers and sisters. I was worried about all sides of the equation, of course, because people are losing their lives. And I've been in, in Israel. I am so impressed by the way that life there is pulled out by force from this inhospitable desert and how beautifully it's done. What have you been thinking as you watch these uh, these terrible hostilities? Well, I don't have to tell you, Gracie, the moment we start talking about this subject, we're knee-deep, in fact, almost up to our chins and controversy and yes. there are so many opinions, <laughs> there are so many people who are very angry on both sides. First and foremost, obviously, we, 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 pr we pray for peace. We're trying for peace. There are many Arab Christians still in the Holy Land. It's very difficult because the state of Israel has the right to exist. That's that's something already just even saying that. You feel, you feel controversial? <laughs> Immediately, the moment you say that, because unfortunately, we know there are many people, including, I hate to say it, some of our Christian brethren in the Middle East would not even agree with that statement. And so I think it's very important to say that first, that the state of Israel has the right to exist and to defend itself. The death, the loss of life is horrible. We had, and this also is controversial, but I think one has to speak the truth in love and it's not being political. The previous administration had tremendous success in the Middle East was bringing peace agreements all over the place. All over the place. <laughs> peace agreements. But suddenly we're back as though we're back 20-something years. Something wasn't working clearly and the previous administration did something. I think it, eventually when, when people are balanced, if they're ever balanced about this time, they'll say that foreign policy initiative of the last administration was very, very successful. So things are, things are bad. It's really, really difficult. But I th what's worrying me as well now is the growing anti-Semitism in the world. Yes. For example, seeing the attacks on Jewish people. This has got nothing to do with Israel. When, when Jews are being attacked in New York and Los Angeles and London. In London, they had uh, demonstrations last weekend with people holding placards up saying Hitler was right. This is very disturbing. And a Christian must, with our heritage as well, because we know, unfortunately, the church many centuries ago was responsible for some of this stuff. And I think we have to speak out against that kind of anti-Semitism and any attacks on people for their for their faith, for their for their nationality, for their race. That has also, Father, made me very unhappy watching the anti-Semitic, the ugliness, the, the very open way in which people express their hate because they feel that they have cover by being against the state of Israel, that that gives them cover for these acts of terrible hate against Jews, random Jews on the street, yes. who are obviously yeah. not in any way connected to the conflict that is happening across the ocean. It's very sad to watch it. I worry about the way that some politicians are complicit in this, 
mm-hmm. because of the way that they don't support this, the right of existence of Israel, for instance. And um, I'm, a, I'm very sorry to see our civilization falling back into these old ways, which should never have existed in the first place. Well, I think, once again, from a spiritual and human perspective, the Holocaust, the Shoah, was so uniquely awful in human history. We know that communism killed more than the Nazis under both the Russians all over the world in China. But there was something uniquely awful about the Holocaust, that deliberate targeting of trying to destroy an entire race, that mechanical, monstrous thing. And so even if one gets attacked for it, that that right, that defense of, of Israel's right to exist, I mean, they know, the Israelis know that there are people, nations, that want to wipe them off the face of the earth. They want to succeed where Hitler yes. seemingly failed. They want all Jews eradicated. In fact, they've been on, I've been seeing various things on social media saying, we don't even care if uh, Israel gives Palestine its right to exist, gives it uh, its freedom. We still want to kill all the Jews. It is very disturbing. And I think the church trying to be balanced, trying to be fair, trying to, 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 to see things all in charity. But the church must also speak and very strongly in condemning any form of anti-Semitism. We can't pretend we're going to find a solution at the moment. There has to be compromise, obviously, on both sides. And this is, this is so deep. This almost makes one despair. I know you ask, and sometimes I'm always asked, well, what can we do? And I say we can pray, which sounds like a cop-out, sounds like we're just trying to make the, the easy solution. But ultimately, that is praying and then action. We have to pray for peace, but we have to also speak the truth in love. Father, now switching gears rather violently, because <laughs> I want to ask you, I don't want to run out of time before we get around to talk about a couple things I wanted to ask you about. But one of them is, I know that you're always, you have your finger on the pulse of Christian persecution. I've been reading some really ugly headlines out of Nigeria, abductions of priests and seminarians. Can you tell us about that and what it all means? What's going on in Nigeria? This is something that is not being covered at all by the mainstream media. For example, I'm sure your listeners will be horrified to know that we're only in May of 2021. Already this year, more than 1,400, 1,400 Christians have been killed by jihadists in Nigeria. Priests are being regularly abducted, killed. Just last week, two, one priest was killed and others, they have not found him yet. This is going on constantly, a massive attack. More Christians are dying in Nigeria than ISIS killed in Iraq and Syria. This is a something that seems to be just Black Lives Matter we hear a lot about, but we don't hear much about black Christian lives in, in Africa. There's a massive assault on Christians from jihadists, from Islamic extremists all across Africa. It's not just Nigeria. Nigeria seems to be the worst, but all across Africa, jihadists, ISIS under its many forms is, has not been defeated. ISIS has different names, but they are an Al-Qaeda, very very, very ascendant all over Africa. And our Christian brothers and sisters are suffering greatly. And we're not we're not hearing anything about it. And who defends these these Christians and all these in, in Nigeria, for example? Who is who can well, be Nigeria their defense? Is meant to be 
so-called democracy. Unfortunately, this present president in Nigeria and his entire cabinet, the Catholic bishops are very brave there. They've been challenging, for example, the, the, the president and the, the government, why there are so few Christians in the government, why he's letting, seems to be letting the slaughter continue. But there are these very, very brave men, uh, the priests, the bishops, and of course the lay, the laity and the religious, uh, they seem, uh, I was talking to, to someone the other day who was just about to go to Nigeria to do some investigation about this slaughter. He was, he, he's stunned. He, he, he was just in, in a state of distress that there's no media coverage. You would think if, imagine if 1,400 people from some other group had been killed in the, and rightly we hear, for example, a lot about the, the Uyghurs in China. We hear about the, the Muslims in, in Burma and in Myanmar and Rohingyas and rightly because all that kind of persecution is very wrong. But we're not hearing this massive slaughter of Christians in Nigeria. Do you think we don't hear about it because it's happening in Africa and, well, that's how it goes in Africa? People just slaughter each other periodically? Or is it because they are Christians, it's uh, Muslims attacking Christians and we rather, the, the press would rather not go there? Well, I think it's probably quite a bit of both. I think the first is true. People get that, what they call sort of compassion fatigue and they've heard so long that how bad things are in Africa. But for example, for your listeners, so many parishes now in the United States are served, as you know, by African priests. That's right. These great priests. And they're very they're very good men. They're very humble men. And they're very quiet men. For example, one of the priests I knew in Vermont, I didn't know until I began to really question him. He'd lost one of his own fellow priests from his seminary, been murdered, martyred. Martyred is the word. And another African priest I was talking to, Nigerian, was telling me, I said, why don't you speak to your people? Speak to the people. I imagine if all of them in the parish has spoken in the United States about what's going on in their own country, it might wake up some people. But yes, as you said, the other thing is, for example, I've heard reports that the attacks by the what are called the Fulani herdsmen, these are these are Muslim farmers who are driving Christians off their land and killing thousands of them. That's been described by some people, for example, some people from the EU as because of climate change. Climate change. Yeah, it's climate change that's causing them to kill Christians. It's always it's, been miserably hot there, hasn't it? This, 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 <laughs> this is just, it's... This is when you realize something insane is going on. Oh, well, there's a lot of insanity out there, Father. I feel like the, the, the devil is rewriting our language so that we can never quite understand what anyone's saying or speak the truth clearly to each other. <laughs> well, his job is to confuse and to deceive and to uh, lay cause all kinds of confusion. But uh, I think it's important for the listeners to to really question what's going on. And I always say when you, when you ask me on the show, voters have power power. It's mm -hmm. up to our listeners to speak to senators, representatives, etc. What's going on? Why are we not hearing about Nigeria? For example, people say, what can we do? One of the things we can do is withhold aid. When a government's failing to give civil rights to certain groups in society and failing to defend them, then we don't give them aid, which is why China is such an issue. Well, and in the case of Africa, I think the aid tends to go into people's private Swiss bank accounts. Isn't that how it goes? <laughs> Quite often, unfortunately, but but it's an important thing when when a government like the United States or, or, or Great Britain gives a very large amount of aid to a country, to 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 demand. I mean, there's this whole debate, as you know, at the moment about any kind of trading with China. Yes, of course. Uh, 
and it's all that's all often swept under the carpet or let's not talk about human rights let's just get on with making money mm-hmm. yeah there's a lot of incentive to, to keep up commerce with china which makes such a huge impact economically right with all our big companies especially um, uh, but what uh, about christians in china they are suffering they are suffering persecution just like the muslim population china and it's important also when we speak about china we're not talking about the chinese people we're talking about the communist party of china the of ccp course. which is an evil regime and they are trying to destroy they're trying to control every aspect of life it's the most surveilled state in the world as we know now it's it's quite terrifying and so just recently in the last couple of weeks we heard about a seminary where the authorities raided the seminary they arrested the bishop they arrested several of the priests the seminarians and this has all happened gracie unfortunately as we know during this so-called vatican china deal where the vatican made a deal with with the communist party of china i must again repeat that a deal with the communist party of china about the appointment of bishops etc and the idea was this would somehow help the church in china the very opposite has happened the persecution has increased and we hear from the people like the great cardinal zen i mean there's a hero if ever mm-hmm. we want to find a hero today in the church cardinal zen this this very old cardinal from hong kong who's been speaking out consistently in a spirit of loyalty to the holy father to the pope but also telling the truth this vatican china deal is demonic you're dealing with the devil you're dealing with with you're dealing with the communist party of china and Christians, Catholics, are being arrested. Their churches are being closed. Um, and maybe demonic was a, <laughs> That's a, strong, a strong word. word. But I do. I, 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 Cardinal Zen has, has, has been so strong in his condemnation of this deal. Um, and so I think it's important, once again, to, to remember that this, this country, this communist country, is, is actively persecuting Christians in just the same way as it did, Russia did, or the Iron Curtain countries did. Well, and also to assess with clear eyes what has happened since the deal was signed, right? Because uh, we have to assume in charity that it was signed because the Vatican was hoping that this would improve the the lot of Catholics in China and, and help them to be able to worship freely. I think it needs to be reassessed in light of of what you say that things have in fact gotten worse for the, for the Catholics on the street. That's factual. I mean, that's not a that's not a polemical point. That's that is factual that that things have got worse. And why Cardinal Zen and others, Lord David. Alton, who's known to you, Gracie, but mm-hmm. also is known to one of the great champions of religious liberty here in England and all over the world. Lord Alton spoke actually recently on Raymond Arroyo's show on EWTN and, and spoke very, very strongly against this Vatican-China deal. And he's a devout believing Catholic. Yes. But it's bad. It's a very, very bad deal. When you make a deal with communists, I don't think usually the church comes out well. History will tell you that. My own family history is all about deals gone bad with communists. And I'm surrounded by other people from Latin America who have, yeah, are also have course. constantly been experiencing this, the horror of communism and socialism and its lack of respect for our religious liberty, our conscience rights. So, Father, that's sort of a sad note to end on, but we have to end because our time is up. And I want to thank you for being on the show and, and having such wonderful, interesting conversation always for us on so many different topics. And please remind our listeners how they can learn more about your organization. Thank you, Grace. They can go to the website site nazarian.org i always spell it because it's important there's an s and not a z n-a-s-a-r-e-a-n.org and please listeners uh, pray for our persecuted brothers and sisters 
Thank you, Father. Thank you, Gracie. Welcome back to Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie. And now we have Mary Rice Hassan. She's from the Ethics and Public Policy Center and one of the smartest women in America. Welcome to the show, Mary. Thank you so much. It's wonderful to be here. Mary, there's so much to talk about with you. You're able to look at the, the current situation that all of us are facing in some way or another and bring clarity. And of course, I'm talking in particular right now about the transgender ideology because it's impacting all of us, whether we have children in school school or we're meeting it at work or we, my gosh, have grandchildren or nieces or nephews that are being impacted by this and, and we're watching lives fall apart. We, you know, we stand here facing the situation and saying, oh my gosh, now what? I face it in a certain way as a doctor mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. It, it is in a, in a way that, that impacts me a lot. I feel very strongly about the lack of scientific evidence for any of it and how it's all, it's all political and ideological and that it's damaging the patient-doctor relationship. So maybe we can talk about some of these issues as as you see them, Mary. Sure. I I think it's kind of fascinating that an issue that 20 years ago, 30 years ago, affected 0.002% of the population. In other words, this idea of identifying in a way that does not match up with your body, that affected such a tiny percent of the population. And there was a very small number of, of medical doctors and psychiatrists who were working on that. And now, all of a sudden, the ideology that has grown from that has just exploded loaded onto the scene and as you said is affecting all of our lives whether you're working in a for a defense contractor or you're in the military or you're in med school or a physician or a practicing counselor or a parent with a child in school it really has become pervasive within our society I think when it all started, Mary, when we all started noticing it, because all of us knew that there were some people who, when they were adults, had this idea that maybe they should be the other sex. And we knew they existed, mm-hmm. but we weren't going to run into them, probably. They were so rare. Mm-hmm. But now, when it, when this all started and we started to feel it ourselves, we thought, well, this is just a weird path passing fad. And it's going to blow over. And we don't have to pay too much attention. We, we were wrong, weren't we? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, I think so. And, and unfortunately, I think... A lot of people with good hearts and good intentions have really been drawn into this almost unwillingly just because of the way it has come through society. So we saw, uh, obviously, the sexual revolution came and people started throwing away different moral boundaries and things like that. But in the process, as this idea of gender as something apart from uh, the reality of a person's body, as that kind of started to go mainstream and certainly into academia, people started throwing out not just moral boundaries, but scientific boundaries and no longer accepting the reality that biologically sex has something to do with reproduction. The body is organized either as male or female, according to whether you've got large gametes, small gametes, the whole body is organized towards that reproductive role. And being male or female means something. But we've seen just because of political pressures that even a biological truth now is under fire in schools, in language, in, in uh, just general practice. So you may have seen the, um, the latest issue of The Lancet that came out where it, they were focusing on menstruation and, and women's periods. 
But they didn't use the word women to describe who, you know, who was the subject of this issue in these articles. They they simply referred to people with vaginas. So there's this I depersonalization. Saw I saw that, oh, Mary. And yeah. you, know, you know what ca- caught my attention is that the article was actually about how women had been marginalized because of their their periods because of the difficulty of being a woman and all the you know the physical incapacitation mm-hmm. that that brings about and the the way that that's you know it's it's icky right and so okay. in some cultures that becomes a really bad thing but they couldn't bring themselves to use the word woman so we're yeah. we're, we're rapidly crawling back into the caves it seems to me as far as our development as human beings yes and it is so ironic because as you say in some parts of the world it's a real problem for women they're not allowed to come out the girls can't go to school if they are at that part of their cycle. So so there's progress should be encouraging everyone to be more grounded in the reality and accepting of biology and the truth of men and women and valuing both. And yet here we have uh, this the Lancet, leading medical journal, just erasing even the word women in the process. So it, it's, it's ironic, but it's, it's really deeply disturbing. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and we're talking to Mary Hassan from the Ethics and Public Policy Center. So Mary, you talk about the capture of these organizations, um, like the American Academy of Pediatrics. What is it? What do you mean, the capture? So here's, here's what's happened. We saw the progression within the psychological community where the DSM changed its diagnosis codes, so no longer calling gender identity issues a disorder. It now became accepted with no no new research or anything, Gracie. This is just a responding to political pressure to destigmatize this diagnosis. They said, uh, we're going to erase the idea that this is a pathology to have this sort of disconnect between between your identity and, and your body. So we're not going to call it gender identity disorder. We're just going to say that the diagnosis that will remain is going to be called gender dysphoria, which simply means you are distressed over this disconnect. And not everyone who identifies as transgender would experience gender dysphoria. But that allowed the psychological community to retain a diagnosis and the medical community that's accepted in the DSM so that they could push for insurance coverage ah. for body modifications mm-hmm. designed to treat that. So that's that's the reason why they didn't throw it out entirely. It sort of presented a dilemma. They're trying to destigmatize this and say it's perfectly normal for a person to identify in a way where they're rejecting their body and they, they want to alter their body to express but some other identity. But it may cause then, them distress, which then we have to, the entire world has to step in and fix, even though it's not fixable. <laughs> well, and also along with this, those who who uh, frame the whole transgender issue as simply a matter of human rights will say every person has the right to express the identity they want and they have the further right to modify their body to match their desired identity and medicine should just go along with that. But the doesn't that is- sound like a cosmetic uh, support, like a cosmetic surgery? I mean, a, a woman maybe feels she ought to be large-breasted. Does that mean that the rest of us have to participate in this? <laughs> well, exactly right. So here's, here's the question, who pays? And so the reason for retaining gender dysphoria in the DSM was because then you have a diagnosis code which allows them to um, pressure insurance companies to cover it. And we know under the American or the Affordable Care Act, it specifically said you can't discriminate on the basis of gender identity. You have to provide, quote, medically necessary procedures, which then were defined broadly, you know, opening up that loophole to cover anything that 
the person who's experiencing this disconnect between mind and body, anything they say they need. So it becomes something that's basically self-diagnosed and and people are seeking medical interventions on demand. They, they uh, don't want medical gatekeeping, they call it. They just want to be able to demand it. So you might say, but wait, that doesn't sound like good medicine, right? No, <laughs> you know? not at all. Usually we go to the doctor and we expect the doctor to do the diagnosing and we expect them to bring their expertise to say, all right, here's something's something's not quite right. Here are the different options for how we go about fixing it. Here are the short-term consequences. Here are the long-term consequences. And also we we expect the doctor to have our ultimate good in mind, which might not be that uh, present to the patient who's experiencing whatever the problem is at that particular moment, right? Sometimes the patients want something done right away and we know that that's not what's going to help them Mm. ultimately. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's that's a really good point. So what's happening here is the erasure of the doctor's independent medical judgment. And instead, the social pressure, but increasingly the law, is trying to compel medical practitioners and to simply provide these medical interventions, whether it's hormones or surgery, on the basis of the person's gender identity and their demand for those particular interventions. So the doctor is, is supposed to put their independent medical judgment, their expertise, right, all those years of medical school and residency and fellowships, put it up on the shelf and just not pay attention to that. They're supposed to simply respond as long as the the person sitting in front of them who's asking for these interventions appears to understand the current state of medicine in terms of the risks and benefits and, and the consequences so far as you can tell, then the doctor's done his job. He just has to perform to provide what is requested. What we know in reality is that this is producing really bad outcomes because we have this rising number, particularly of teenagers and young adults who are caught up in this sense of interior dissatisfaction with their bodies, or sometimes just a political desire to express a different identity and they want their body to to match and they want to do all these interventions. And the doctors are are being treated sort of like vending machines, like put in your request and you want a certain result without their independent medical judgment being respected or their conscience. and their conscience-based decisions about whether a procedure is ethical, whether it's it's something morally they can participate in, all of that is being tossed aside in an effort to kind of appease a small but growing number of people who really see their bodies as something that is just their canvas for personal expression and they get to do with it whatever they want and everyone else should not just go along with it, but pay for it. Now, so there, uh, there are, a thousand, are a thousand ways that that's terrible when we're talking about adults. But when we talk about children, I want to ask you, Mary, and what is driving this uh, terrible increase, um, thousand percent, thousands percent increase in young people and children, young early teens, mm-hmm. identifying as something other than just a normal girl or boy. Yeah, so and you're right, there, there's this tremendous increase in the UK, they documented a 4,400% increase, in other words, 4,400% increase in just a decade in terms of young people expressing these transgender identities. So we have a couple of things going on. One, we have ideology. So we have a very small group of practitioners within the American Academy of Pediatrics. It's an interest group within an interest group, got on board and decided to back this idea of gender 
affirmation and affirming care. In other words, when the child says, I'm transgender, the adults and medical professional and counsels, counselors are supposed to just affirm that, validate it, and go along with it. So you have a politicized group within medicine really pushing to normalize certain, not just certain behaviors and identities, but certain treatment protocols without there being any good evidence that this is beneficial. And in fact, there's good evidence that it's that it's harmful. So that's one thing. Within the practice of medicine, you have ideologues who are pushing for a result and they have a social goal, which is the difference between advocacy and, and science. Science looks at evidence and asks questions and then revises your questions based on, on what you measure and what you find. Advocacy starts with a social goal in mind and it mm-hmm. goes from there. And so that's what we're seeing, unfortunately, within medicine. We're seeing advocacy dressed up as science. And at the same time, we have this social contagion effect because we have media, we have entertainment, we have sports, we have the corporate world, we have social media all have jumped aboard this ideological train of promoting LGBT identities as just a normal, full expression of humanity. And there being just a lot of happy talk around that, right? That it's, it leads in all these good directions. And it, it, that's not supported by the evidence. Putting aside Catholic morality and Catholic theology, when you just look at the data, Those who are identifying as transgender, for example, are much more likely to have or to be involved in substance abuse, to um, they're less likely to finish school. They're more likely to be involved in abusive relationships, dating relationships. They're more likely to be involved in sexual activity earlier and to be involved in forced sexual activity, not to mention They have high rates of depression, anxiety, oftentimes autism diagnoses, ADHD. So there's there's a host of of, um, problems that are connected with these identities that can't be explained away as being the result of social stigma. Because right now we have less social stigma than we've had ever attaching to LGBT identities. And yet we have worse mental health and more problems arising in kids who are in these populations. So you're so, saying that uh, p- people who complain that the, the, the high suicide ideation rates and the, the sad, all those sad ways that people with these issues live, that's not because they're not being accepted, but because it's inherent with that, with that lifestyle, with that, with that way of looking at yourself, no? Exactly And all the right. things that go along with it. But Mary, besides the, the way that society has pushed this ideologically, from everywhere, from the education establishment mm-hmm. and, and, and academia and, and um, Hollywood and everything. What about the sexual exploitation part of it? The sex- mm-hmm. sexualization of our, of our young people, the grooming behaviors, the, the exploitation. There seems to be a dangerous, ugly undercurrent under all of this that's affecting our kids. Yeah, there is. There is. Um, and we know of it in several ways. One, by parents tuning in and finding out what their kids are being exposed to in schools and different GSAs, gender and sexuality alliances, but principally what we're seeing coming through social media. And so it's not uncommon for kids to be who are exploring, who are raising questions, particularly if they're introduced to these ideas at school, they go home, they they get on their phone or they get on their computer, they start searching, searching, and they find these communities of people who are identifying as trans or non-binary. And unfortunately, within those communities, 
studies, there seems to be a pattern of older, more experienced people who are identifying in these ways, who are coming and reaching out to these young people online and sort of mentoring them and helping to encourage them to explore and interpreting for them their own feelings and desires and increasingly exposing them to pornography. There is a real undercurrent of links between pornography and the explosion of transgender identities, particularly among young males who are oftentimes also involved in anime and the gaming culture. And so we're seeing, again, we know this through detransitioners, through parent testimonies, that there seems to be a growing problem with older people who have identified in all these different ways or living, in many cases, deviant lifestyles who are reaching out to vulnerable kids online and encouraging them, exposing them to really, really horrible degrading things, but presenting all this as an expression of personal freedom and at the same time, marginalizing the parental voice, encouraging these kids to disregard what they've learned from their parents, what they're hearing from faith groups, that all of those, anyone who opposes their transgender or non-binary identity is in reality being a transphobe. And the only people they can really trust are these, you know, new online friends and mentors and this community, their chosen family. So becomes very seductive and it is grooming because there's a pathway and there's a pattern and there's a, a sustained sort of stroking and pulling pulling kids along a path where the kids don't know where they're going. But once you start to see these patterns, it's very predictable. And the therapists who are dealing with young people trying to help undo some of this damage hey, can really see these patterns. And you and I both know having children, when you try to help them and warn them, they feel that you're not trusting them. And we have to keep reminding them, we trust you completely. It's the rest of the world we don't trust. So thank you, Mary, of the Ethics and Public Policy Center for joining us again. Thank you so much, Gracie, for all that you do in the Catholic Association in just bringing to light not just this topic, but so many other important issues of the day. Every morning, the Catholic Association reviews all the latest news and sends our subscribers a carefully curated collection of the most important news of the day. Items are specifically selected for a smart Catholic audience like you. Don't let the world take you by surprise. Subscribe to our daily meeting Media Roundup at thecatholicassociation.org. And now, Father Roger Landry offers us, as is customary, a short and inspiring homily to prepare us for this Sunday's Gospel. This is Father Roger Landry, and it's a privilege for me to be with you as we enter into the consequential conversation the risen Lord Jesus wants to have with each of us this Sunday, when we will join him in dialogue with the Pharisees, when they approached Jesus in the area across the Jordan from the Holy Land and asked him a question about marriage and divorce. It wasn't a question of curiosity or even to learn. St. Mark tells us they were testing him. Jesus was in the area where John the Baptist once preached and baptized. And to ask him about the lawfulness of marriage and divorce was to ask him a political question for which John had already been killed by Herod Antipas. John had told Herod that it was not lawful for him to be married to the wife of his brother Philip, not just because this incest by affinity was contrary to the plan of God, but because marrying another person's wife certainly was. Herod thought that Jesus was John risen from the dead. Therefore, to ask Jesus about marriage and divorce in that spot where John used to baptize was to invite Jesus to criticize the same king for the same reason and suffer the same consequence. Jesus responded not just by citing the book of Genesis, but invoking, in a sense, his own memory of how things were in the beginning. In the beginning, Genesis teaches, 
God created man in his image and likeness. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. Because man is most fully in God's image and likeness when he's united to the woman in a communion of persons in love. Just as in God, the mutual love of the Father and the Son eternally generated the Holy Spirit, so the mutual love of husband and wife can generate a third person, who's both a living fruit of their love and a means for that love to grow. In God's plan, marriage is a singular sign in participation in God's image and likeness. Therefore, Jesus adds, what God has joined together, no human being must separate. Marriage is part of God's wisdom from the beginning in order to bring us into the loving union of the Trinity. In recent years, however, we know that the wisdom of God's plan with regard to marriage and divorce has been getting challenged from both inside and outside the church. Many have begun to question openly whether God's plan for marriage, taught courageously and consistently by the church since Christ founded her, is true and relevant. These doubts or confusions about marriage are fraught with enormous consequences. For since God designed marriage to help us to discover who we are in his image and likeness, and to reflect by analogy God's own relationship with his people, if we misunderstand what marriage is, we'll misunderstand who we are, who God is, and how we're called to live our life in God's image and likeness. What are the challenges about marriage that our contemporaries need to take to Jesus? The first comes from those who try to say God's plan for marriage shown in the Bible is irrelevant, that marriage isn't necessary. The second challenge comes from those who say that God's plan for marriage is too demanding, as the divorce rate of over 40% attests. To be married to one person until death is an unrealistic expectation. The third comes from those who say that marriage is bigoted because it excludes two people from the same sex from marrying. To make marriage require a husband and a wife is to base it on biology rather than love, they say. And this is just an effect of a heteronormative bias. How would Jesus respond to these three categories of challenges? I think he'd do the same thing he did 2,000 years ago by taking us back to what marriage really means and then applying it to the particular question. Just as he did in this Sunday's Gospel, Jesus would challenge our contemporaries to overcome the hardness of heart due to sin that clouds our judgment on marriage. Then I think he would repeat the same words about the origin, meaning, and mystery of marriage that he said to the Pharisees. These three sentences contain in nucleus Jesus' response to the questions of modern man. To those who think marriage is just a piece of paper, Jesus tells us that marriage is part of God's plan for man and woman from the beginning. Man, he says, is called to leave his father and mother and cling not to his girlfriend, not just to anyone he pleases, but to his wife, to someone with whom he has been joined in a one-flesh union by God and to whom he has made a lifelong commitment. Those who claim that marriage is simply a piece of paper want some of the goods of marriage, like sex and accompaniment, without wanting selflessly to make the commitment that true love demands. For that reason, as long as the situation persists, they'll probably never fully experience love, which is based on a total exchange of self-gifts. They'll probably never truly discover who they really are and the greatness of their dignity, which comes only through the selfless gift of self to God and others. They will probably never truly understand or experience the love of God, which becomes intelligible by God's design, mainly through the experience of true human love. To those with the second challenge, who think that the indissolubility of marriage and God's plan is too hard, Jesus states clearly that once God joins a man and a woman in marriage, they're bound to each other until God separates them through death. 
For this reason, he says, divorce is nothing more than a human legal declaration that cannot change one's marital status before God. And remarriage is adultery and therefore seriously sinful. Jesus does not say, notice, that divorce itself is sinful, but only whoever divorces his wife and marries another is committing sin, what we would call divorce and remarriage. The church Jesus founded to carry on his mission has always recognized that sometimes, for the protection of one spouse from the other or for the welfare of children, some legal sanction may be necessary against one of the parties. It's not divorce itself that the church always opposes, but thinking and acting as if divorce severs the one flesh bond that God has brought about through marriage. The church always wants to remain close to those who have experienced the pain of divorce and help them recover. It wants to help them remain faithful to God and to the promises they've made. And if they think that something was defective in their consent on the day of their marriage, the church also seeks to help them to determine whether their marriage was null. To the final group of challengers, who think that marriage traditionally has been a form of bigotry, we sometimes hear the claim that Jesus never spoke out in opposition to same-sex marriage. That's because to do so would have been absurd in the Jewish context of his time when no one would have ever considered it. In his response to the Pharisees, however, Jesus gave us all the principles necessary to know why he would absolutely have opposed this radical revolution in the meaning of marriage. I go through this not to be polemical to hurt anybody or offend anybody, but to get at the truth about marriage to which Jesus witnesses. Jesus said that in the beginning, God made the human person male and female, not male and male or female and female. For this reason, he continued, a man leaves not his two moms or two dads, but his mother and father, and clings not to whom every wants, but to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. This one flesh union is not simply the ephemeral contact a man and woman have in the act of making love but the incorporation of both of their flesh in a new child, who is the instantiated fruit of their love and a means by which that love will grow. This type of union is obviously impossible to those of the same sex. We can go so far as to say that the whole purpose of the differentiation of the sexes by God in the beginning is to allow for procreation, for man's and woman's participation in God's continual act of the creation of new men and new women. Finally, Jesus says, what God has joined, man must not divide. This refers, I think, to more than merely the union of a particular man and a particular woman in marriage, but the heterosexual union of man and woman in marriage in general. God has created man and woman with this complementarity, and for that reason, marriage should never be allowed to be a manless or a womanless institution. As we see to the questions, man and woman have in every epoch about marriage. Christ provides the answer. By taking us back to the beginning, Christ cuts across particular fads and misunderstandings flowing from our hardened hearts that so often are prone to substitute lust for love, selfishness for sacrifice, and fleeting pleasure for faithful permanence. With precision and clarity, Christ sketches for us the deep and abiding beauty of the great institution and sacrament of marriage to guide us and through us to guide the world. God bless you all. 
Thank you, Father Landry. To hear more from Father Landry, check out his website at catholicpreaching.com, and you can also catch his writings at EWTN's own National Catholic Register. A big thank you to all our listeners for joining us. I hope that this show was helpful. I hope that it gave you more peace and more hope and more joy, and you go with our prayers. 